Well, when you systematize the teaching of the Bible, you end up with 10 major topics or branches. You have the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, angels and demons, man, sin, salvation, the church, and last things. It's been the goal of this basic Bible doctrine series to give one night of study to each of these 10 major branches of doctrine or theology. We're trying to summarize and simplify, keep things basic, but at the same time, these haven't been meager lessons because as we've learned, there's just a huge volume of biblical truth they're trying to cram into each one of these Bible studies. It's the reason why most systematic theologies are like over a thousand pages long. There's just a lot. The Bible's a big book. But I hope these introductory studies have helped you still gain a, a solid introductory overview to basic Bible doctrine. We, we'd have to make one exception to our practice last week, though, or last time, with the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, in that there's just no way we could cover that whole thing in one lesson. The doctrine of salvation itself is a home to so many other doctrines, and if we if you summarize too much, if you simplify it too much, you run the, the risk of actually becoming misleading. And that's not something we want to do when it comes to something like, like salvation. It's something we want to get right. Well, last time we started into soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, which itself has five subheaders. So we covered last time the plan of salvation and the provision of salvation. The salvation belongs to the Lord. It's been his plan since the foundation of the world. And so we studied the concept of grace and election in keeping with God's plan, how everything that went into his plan to visit salvation upon us. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, Christ Jesus, and to first and foremost make provision of salvation for us. And so we studied the atonement, which is the provision of salvation. So we finished last time. That was already quite a lot. We still have a lot more to come. We need to carry on and finish today the doctrine of salvation with the three remaining kind of subheaders, and that would be the application of salvation, the continuation of salvation, and the completion of salvation. Kind of go through those one by one. So first, let's move right into it. The next subheader, which is the application of salvation. Jesus made provision that must be applied. And plans are made to be carried out. No couple plans a vacation, books a hotel, gets their flights, packs their bags, only to then not go on the trip. And you make plans and provisions, and that's good, but they only go so far. There comes a time when your plans have to be carried out. You make plans to carry them out with full intention. And thankfully, God did not plan for his plan of salvation just to sit on the shelf forever. It was made with an intention of carrying it out in eternity past, and, and here we are. 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus made provision for that salvation. And ever since, and throughout salvation history, God has been applying that plan and provision to bring about our salvation. So we can be thankful for that. We want to understand, though, how is this plan and provision of salvation applied to us such that we are saved? That's what we're studying here in the application of salvation. What happens at salvation, how is one saved? Well, let's talk about a few things. First, calling. We'll have several uh, subpoints under this one as well in the application of salvation. We'll start with calling. That the application of salvation begins with the calling. Salvation begins with a call. Before people can respond in faith, they need to be confronted with the claims of the gospel. They must be called. But there's two types of calls. One verbal, the other nonverbal. One external, the other internal. One hidden, the other revealed. One can be resisted, the other is effectual. So we need to understand these two calls. That's the first step in understanding the, uh, the application of salvation. So let's start with the external call, under the calling here. Starting with the external call. You guys remember common grace and special grace? And scripture makes a distinction between God's common grace, which goes out to all people, and a special grace, which is reserved for his people, the elect. And it's the same with this external call, which goes out to all, and this effectual call, which only goes out to his people, the elect. The external call goes out to all, just like common grace goes out to all. 
The external call does not save in itself, just like common grace does not save in itself. The external or sometimes called general call simply refers to a verbal proclamation of the gospel message. When someone is, is summoned to believe, when someone is called to believe in the preaching of the gospel. Anytime the gospel goes out, a general call to believe goes out. This external call is intended to go out to all people without distinction. Not everyone on the planet will hear the gospel preached, but the church is not to discriminate. We are to, to, to blanket the whole globe with the gospel, sharing the gospel to everyone. We call everyone to salvation. And this, this general call goes out to everyone. You see that in scripture? And Christ himself said, John seven thirty seven. he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come. Acts 17, 30. Paul said, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And that call is universal. Everyone should repent and believe. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus invites all people. He says, come to me, all who are weary, weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. And many, many more examples. There's just the general external call. Whenever the gospel is preached, whenever sinners are invited to believe, this a general call goes out. Now, plenty of people don't believe the gospel when it's preached to them. And we've learned why that is. It's because they're still dead in their sins. They're actually unable to respond to this invitation to believe in Jesus, to come to Jesus, to be saved. And we've learned already, especially with our study last time of grace and special grace, unless a special call goes out at the same time, raising the spiritual dead to life, They're unable to respond to the external call of the gospel. But thankfully, God issues such an effectual call as he sees fit. So let's talk about this effectual call. This effectual call can be defined as a divine summons. In this call, God summons the sinner from a state of spiritual death to a state of spiritual life. And per its nature... This call carries with it the power of God to bring a person to spiritual resurrection. This is an act of God's sovereign will. So all those who are called will be transformed. And it ensures they respond to that general call with saving faith. This is why this special call is often referred to as the effectual call. It is effective when it goes out. It's effective in in its goal. And it's really in conjunction with irresistible grace. That was from last time. You'll have to get that lesson if you weren't here, but it's really the same as irresistible grace. This effectual call goes out according to God's will. It comes in conjunction with an external call. So as the gospel is preached, God uses the gospel as the mechanism, but then as he sees fit, he will issue an effectual call in the heart of a believer, enabling them to believe. God doesn't force or coerce anyone to believe. Rather, what's happening is he's recreating our nature. He gives us a new will in the moment of the the general call. He opens our blind eyes where we can behold the glory of Christ and we are enabled to believe. And when when a nature is restored like that and presented with Christ, Christ becomes irresistible and ensures that someone will choose to believe and be saved. We'll see how that corresponds with regeneration in just a little bit. Let's just look at some distinguishing marks of this effectual call from Scripture. Because it's all over the place. You know, first, this call is internal. The, The external call is, well, external. But the effectual call is internal. It takes place at the level of the heart. Just like Acts 16, 14 says, Paul is there. He's preaching the gospel to a group of women. A whole group gets an external call. But Acts 16, 14 says that the Lord opened the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken of my Paul. It wasn't true for the other ladies, but God did an act in the heart of Lydia, enabling her to respond and believe. That's why she believed. This effectual call is particular. It's, it's given to the elect only. This is part of the application of their salvation. In John 10 Verses 3 through 4, 27 through 28, Christ, the good shepherd, mentions how the the shepherd calls his sheep by name. He knows them. He's calling to them by name. And when he calls them, they come to him and he gives eternal life to them. This is 
That's not a call to everyone. It's just a call to his sheep, whom the Father has given to him, whom he already knows. And then listen to 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. Where Paul says to them, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel goes out to many, but only the the chosen are called through the gospel to salvation. This effectual call is undeserved. This is by grace. It's special grace. Like I said, it parallels special grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31, Paul tells us to consider your calling, that you've been chosen by God. This calling comes with God's choice. This is why there's no boasting. How can I boast? This is by God's grace. And then 2 Timothy 1, 9, another big verse from last time. It says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to works, but according to his purpose and grace in Christ Jesus. This calling is by his special grace. And then a, a final characteristic of this effectual call is that it's saving. When the call goes out, it results in someone's salvation. It's a, a sovereign saving call. This is Romans 8.30. Those whom God predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. I mean, it starts in the past with this predestination. It's going to result in glorification. In a moment of time, though, there's a calling. It's when they're summoned to that new life. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that God is faithful through whom you were, you were called into fellowship with his son. You didn't come on your own. You, you were called. You were summoned. 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will perfect you. And really, this becomes a main way to identify Christians in the New Testament. Christians are the called. That's one way to identify us. We are those who are the called. And that's not everybody. It's just the elect. Romans 1, 6, and 7, you are the called of Jesus Christ, called as saints. As we learned with the doctrines of man and sin, and because of original sin and total depravity and limited ability, this effectual call is necessary for salvation. Where if God never moved, if he never issued a, a sovereign call to raise the dead to life, then nobody would ever be able to respond to the gospel. You can preach the gospel to everybody. No one would ever believe. It's like walking in a graveyard and just telling everyone to, to get up. They will never do that because they're unable to respond. They're, they're dead. I mean, it's absurd. They're, they're obviously unable to answer your call. But God has the power to raise the dead physically, but spiritually. He can spiritually raise the dead to enable one to respond to the call of the gospel. That's what takes place with this effectual call. That's what's happening uh, in a moment of salvation. By way of application, if you're here, you're a Christian, that means you are the called. You are called by God. He's called you. That calling came with a purpose, several purposes. One of the main ones we learned about this morning, holiness, righteousness. We've been called out of darkness that we would walk in the light. We have this great privilege of being called by his grace. And so we hear this refrain throughout scripture that we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We need to take that to heart all the time to, to have our conduct match our calling. And another reason God called you is that you might call others with the general call, meaning preach the gospel. I mean, God has to do his part. He has to supply the effectual call, his irresistible grace. We trust him to do that as he sees fit. You and I are simply called to be faithful to, to blanket the globe with the gospel. 1 Peter 2, 9 reminds us you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the called. We are to now call others with the gospel, trusting God to do his work. Now, I mentioned this ties into regeneration. Let's talk about that now. 
So a second category under the application of salvation is regeneration. Let's get into that. Number two, regeneration. This is where the the concept born again comes from, which had a huge resurgence in the 60s and 70s. Politicians, authors, celebrities started talking about being born again, came into American vernacular and became mainstream. But a lot of Christians really failed to understand what it actually means to be born again. It became so common, it was diluted. This distinction between I'm a Christian versus I'm a born again Christian. In reality, there's only one type of Christian. It is a born again Christian. That, that is true. There's no such thing actually as a non-born again Christian. Seeing that everyone must be born again or regenerated to be saved. But let's ask, what, what, is that, what does that really mean? What's it mean to be regenerated? I'll give you some, some more subheaders here. Let's start the meaning of regeneration. <clears throat> regeneration is a work of God where he, he gives new spiritual life. This is a recreation where he brings you into a new state of being or you can liken, liken it to a spiritual resurrection. You're given a new spirit. He creates a new nature within you, bringing you from spiritual death to life. And scripture expresses regeneration in many ways. Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 is a big one. The first three verses, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're a child of wrath. But then verses 4 through 6 reminds us how that even when we were dead in our transgressions, that God made us alive together with Christ. This is regeneration. We're being made alive just like Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions, that he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. This is a, a fundamental newness that takes place in salvation. And as with other aspects of salvation, Regeneration affects the whole being, kind of counteracting total depravity. Your mind was blind and darkened, but now you can see. Your heart was depraved, but now it can love God. Your will was enslaved to sin and Satan, but now it's, it's actually free again to obey God. And regeneration is necessary because of, of spiritual death, depravity, and inability. That's why Jesus said in that the main passage, John chapter 3, you can read the whole passage, but John 3, 3, he said, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. You can't enter the kingdom unless you're born again. And spiritual life is needed to see the kingdom. Literally, it means born from above. This is a divine birth, something God does to you. And really what Christ says there shows you how deep the sin problem is. The problem is total depravity and It shows you that man doesn't just need a little bit of reform. He doesn't need some rehab. He needs rebirth. Enter the kingdom. You don't just need to to shape up and reform your ways. You need a total resurrection. You need a new birth. It's radical. And that's what Christ was teaching in John 3, a birth from above. Just what the Old Testament promised with the new covenant. Now let's talk about the source of regeneration. The source of regeneration, it's God, God alone. It's monergistic, something he does to us. We, we just receive it. We're acted upon, but this is God's work. But scripture reveals the different members of the Trinity have a different part to play in regeneration. It starts with God the Father. He's the directing agent. He's the one who issues the summons for us to come to life. You have 1 Peter 1, 3. It says, God the Father, according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's pretty clear. It's God the Father. He caused us to be born again. Clear causality. We're passive. But the Son is involved. Regeneration is really one or enabled by God the Son. That our new birth could not happen apart from Christ's resurrection. In salvation, Christ's death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. Really, the remainder of that verse, 1 Peter 1, 3. And God caused us to be born again. And it says, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. That regeneration, it's a spiritual resurrection in keeping with Christ's own resurrection. In Ephesians 2.6, it says, God raised us up with him. Right? If Jesus did not rise from the dead, if he didn't conquer sin and death, there would be no just basis for God to impart new life to dead sinners. And then finally, regeneration is affected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the effective or efficient cause of this new birth. The Spirit is one who imparts or breathes new life into the soul of a dead sinner. So like Jesus says, John 6, uh, 6, 63, he said, is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. In John 3, 8, that same discussion of John 3, Jesus connected new birth to the Spirit Right, the Spirit moves as He wills. He is the one who will who will condone or conduct, rather, I should say, this birth from above. And then Titus three five just says it that God saved us. It says by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. We should point out that water baptism is not the means of regeneration, contrary to Roman Catholic theology. The Holy Spirit alone is the means of regeneration. Water baptism is merely the symbol of this new birth, like Romans 6 makes pretty clear. Let's include here the results of regeneration. Let's keep going a little bit. We we can't stop to catch a breath. We We have so much to cover, so let's just keep going. The results of regeneration, and this itself could be its own study. Really, regeneration is the starting point of your new life, your Christian life. You could say everything from here out is the result of regeneration. But for the purpose of our survey, let's just include conversion as the primary result of regeneration. Conversion is the main result. And conversion, it's a simple definition. It's just faith plus repentance. When someone repents and believes, they have converted, switched their allegiance. You see, John 1, 12 and 13 speaks of those who have been born of the will of God. We've been born again. They're the ones who go on to then receive Jesus and believe in his name. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. Regeneration is described here as the opening of blind eyes. That enables one to come to faith in Jesus. As a result of this newfound spiritual sight, you can believe. And look... In, in our time, it feels like these things happened at the same time. Regeneration, faith, they feel like they happen in, in the same instant. But there is a logical order to them. I mean, look, as soon as you open your eyes, if light is shining in the room, as soon as you open your eyes, you see the light. And it, it feels instantaneous. It feels like the light has been turned on and your eyes have opened at the same time. But there is a logical order. Technically, you have to open your eyes first before you can ever see the light. Vision It's a consequence of your eyes being opened. And likewise, only after the eyes of the spiritually dead are opened can they see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ to be saved. That faith itself is a result of regeneration makes sense when you realize in Scripture that faith itself is described as a gift. That even our repentance and faith are described as a gift of God in Scripture. Like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you've been saved, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. This salvation by grace through faith. The package comes to us as a gift. And then Acts eleven eighteen says, God granted the Gentiles repentance. The repentance that leads to life. He, he granted it to them. He gave repentance. Same thing with 2 Timothy 2. God is the one who must give repentance. You know, you reflect on the doctrine of regeneration. It drives home the fact that that human nature cannot be reformed. We can't be changed by social reform, by education, by government programs. People and society, we don't need reform. We need rebirth. That's what's wrong with the world. It's, we're just seeing a reflection of the sin problem. That's going to influence the solution. We know at the end of the day, our hope is not in government, 
or activism or programs or even education to save us or even to change society for, for, lasting, for the long run. People fundamentally need rebirth, not reform. And God has so chosen to place his power for rebirth in the gospel, in the message of Christ. In Romans 1, his power is in the gospel. So our only hope at seeing the world or our nation reform, change, change course is, is in the gospel, is seeing and not in politics, not in earthly things, but just seeing people come to trust God as he works in them and makes them new. We're not in control of that, but we can do what he tells us to do, and that's preach the gospel, share the gospel, live the gospel in front of a watching world, and pray and trust God to do the rest. All right, well, the application of salvation, God planned it, made provision for it, he applies it through a, a calling, a divine summons, which in effect is regeneration. He, he brings someone to new life that results in their conversion. They, they come to faith and repentance. And at, at that moment comes justification. This all can happen in, in a blink of an eye to us, uh, but we're breaking down kind of a logical order to the blocks of salvation here. So next comes justification. Third, justification still here in the application of salvation. Let's, let's cover justification. It's one of the most important concepts in Scripture when it comes to salvation. It was the battleground of the Protestant Reformation. Justification is what Martin Luther, you might say, rediscovered or properly understood, contrary to what the Roman Catholics taught about it. They had gotten justification so wrong and today, in many respects, the doctrine of justification is the dividing line between a true gospel and a false gospel. And some Christians that might be intimidated, here's yet another five-syllable theological term to learn, but uh, Scripture is clear about it. It's not hard to grasp, but it's uh, extremely important and practical to know. So let's, let's break it down. Let's do some similar subheadings here, beginning with the need of justification, the need of justification. Why is something like justification needed? We've got regeneration. What more do we need? But really, you think more about the sin problem. Regeneration is good, but regeneration doesn't actually deal with the guilt and the condemnation we've incurred through our sin. Something must be done to deal away with our existing sin problem if we are to be in right relation with God. And look, the problem is not so easily dismissed by thinking God can just forgive people. God can't simply forgive people. We are truly guilty of our sins. We deserve a just judgment. And God is perfectly holy. He's just. He's righteous. Exodus 34, 7. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. He can't just let us go. He can't just look the other way. We have a, the sin problem like we learned about before. It's, it's a huge problem because we are sinners. We are guilty. We deserve judgment. God must carry out this judgment. Like Martin Luther said, here is a problem which needs God to solve it. God has solved the problem. It, it comes in the doctrine of justification, what God has done to enable us to be forgiven. So secondly here, the meaning of justification. Let's talk about it, define it, the meaning of justification. You should know this is something God does alone. Once again, monergistic, we, we play no part. We receive it. God does it. And secondly, it's not an action per se as much as, as a declaration. It's a legal declaration, something God declares, like a judge issuing a, a declaration. He's declaring something to be true. What is God declaring to be true when he justifies us? He renders us justified. Well, it's two things, a negative and a positive. Negatively, God declares us to be not guilty. How could he do that? We are guilty. We're sinners. But because of Christ, remember the provision of salvation, the whole thing we call the atonement. Because of that, by faith, God reckons or imputes our whole debt of sin to Christ, to his account. And having made atonement on the cross, they can be wiped clean. They can be paid for. They were paid for. And we can be forgiven because of his work. That's how we can be justly declared not guilty. 
is Jesus paid the penalty. Like Romans 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it says being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Through that redemption, we study that under atonement. He redeemed us. Romans 5, 9 goes on to say, more than that, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. So that's the first part. God removes our sin. He forgives us our sin through justification, declaring us not guilty because of Christ. That's not enough. If that's all God did, we would become morally neutral like Adam and Eve. But God requires perfect righteousness for us to be in his presence. And so we need something more. But that gets to the positive side of justification. The second declaration, which is righteousness. God declares us perfectly righteous. Again, we're not perfectly righteous, but Jesus is. God takes Christ's credit of righteousness, gives it to our account, transfers it to our account. And so God now sees us as righteous as Christ. This is what it means for us to be reckoned righteous. We learned about that all this morning. And so now we can be more than just forgiven and clean. We can be seen as if we are clothed with Christ's own righteousness because we are. And that's how God accepts us. That's how God saves us, reconciles us. Christ's righteousness is applied to us. And here's all the, the same verses we considered this morning a little bit in our, in our study. Romans 4, 4 through 5. It says, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. We don't work for this justification. We just trust Christ and, and we are credited back to us uh, righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then the clearest verse, Philippians 3.9, the big one, where Paul desired to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's that imputed righteousness. Now, this should be clear, but let's include a little section on the source of justification. The source of justification. It's Christ. I mean, God does not declare us righteous by our own merits, but by Christ's merits. What Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection form the basis for God imputing our sins to him, his righteousness to us. It's not our works. It's Christ's work. That is the source of our justification. We are saved by works, just not our works. We're saved by Christ's work on the cross. Where he made atonement, put away our sins, and is able to justify us. And God is free to reckon Jesus as our personal substitute in judgment and still be just because Jesus actually paid for our sins. So God is still being just when he justifies us because, this is Romans 3, 25, 26, because Jesus died for us. He paid the penalty on the cross. And we've already read all these verses in Romans, so let me switch it up. Let's read Titus 3, 5 through 7, another powerful verse. It says that God saved us not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. A little lesser known, but equally powerful, Titus 3, 5 through 7. Now, one more little section here, the means of justification. The means of justification. This is necessary for salvation. You must be justified to be saved. So how are we justified and the answer is through faith. You're justified by faith and faith alone. Faith itself is not a work. It's not a merit. Like we learn, faith even is a gift. But in God's wisdom, he made 
just a genuine, willing response of faith to be the necessary means of justification. Like I said this morning, faith, it's really the anti-work. You're not not doing anything. Faith is where you're really saying, I can't do anything. It's the admission of guilt and unrighteousness, unworthiness, paired with the confession that Christ is worthy. He's my only hope. He's the Savior, the all in all. And, and though God initiates salvation with the effectual call and brings you to life, only after you believe are you justified. Justification is clearly through faith. And so your response is necessary. This is man's role in salvation. And you must believe to be saved. Uh, but God works first in enabling you to believe by overcoming your sin nature with uh, regeneration, uh, enabling you to repent and believe. And as you do so, you are then justified. But to clarify, Scripture teaches we're justified not by works, not by faith plus works, but by faith alone. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. In Galatians 2.16, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Really, the, the doctrine of justification is the heart of Paul's book of Romans. This is where it's at. And really, though, the reality of justification is what sets up the crescendo of Romans 8 and all those so powerful, impactful truths that it's precisely because salvation belongs to God, that he sovereignly saves people, that he justifies the sinner, that we can have the utmost confidence in our salvation. That our hope is not in ourselves, but in Christ. And from this, we derive the ultimate assurance, knowing that those whom God for new, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Like Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And look, the doctrine of justification lets us know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is now for us. Hey, you're still a sinner, but if you're in Christ, God is for us. He's no longer against us. He's for us and nothing can stop him from completing what he started in his salvation. We still sin. Justification doesn't give us a license to sin. The true believer doesn't even want to anymore. We want to run towards holiness. But even as we sin, we still know, Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. We've been made righteous. By this, we're encouraged to press on. And even as we encounter hardship, suffering, persecution in this life, like Romans 8 goes on to say, well, we know Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And that is the ultimate hope we have. Well, we need to move on because time is fleeting. We still need to squeeze in some thoughts here about two more categories, the continuation of salvation and then the completion of salvation. That'll suffice for now when it comes to the application of salvation. We had to leave some things out like adoption like union with Christ. But for the sake of this little survey, I think that's probably plenty as it is. Calling, regeneration, justification. Major concepts when it comes to how our salvation is applied, how we are actually saved in the moment. Let's carry on though now with the continuation of salvation. And I'll explain that. The continuation of salvation. Because scripture speaks of our salvation in three different aspects past, present, and future. In different ways, you have to be clear, but in different ways we can say we have been saved, past, we are being saved, present, and we will be saved, future. And they all have a legitimate aspect. Past salvation is justification. That's where we're as good as saved and nothing will stop God from finishing what he started. But look, it's it's not like we're glorified in heaven yet. Clearly, we're not like all the way saved. We know something's missing. We, we long to be glorified. There's clearly a, a finality to our salvation that we don't have yet, that God will provide. So that, that future dimension to our salvation is glorification. But in the present, so after justification, before glorification, we have, well, what's called sanctification, our present 
salvation. This is where God calls us and expects us to work out the salvation he worked in us. We don't say present salvation as if like we're, we're making it more real or we're adding to it. We know that's not the case. But sanctification is all about living out the salvation God has given us and showing it, bearing fruit. So let's talk about what salvation looks like after conversion. And let's start with the first sanctification. The first point here under the continuation of salvation would be a sanctification. This is the main concept describing the Christian life after your initial salvation. And if you're going to understand that the word sanctification, you need to understand holiness. And God is perfectly holy, which means set apart, set apart from sin, set apart from evil. He's pure. He's good. And God requires us to be just as holy if we are to be with him. We must be set apart from sin. A man on his own could never attain that level of holiness. We, we are not holy. But God makes us holy. And that, that concept of making holy, of setting apart, that's, that's what sanctification means. To set apart, to make holy. Now there's two types of sanctification. Just like this morning, we learned there's two types of righteousness. There's positional sanctification, where God reckons us perfectly holy. That's the same thing as justification. It's the same thing. In the moment of justification where he declares us righteous, we are made holy. We are declared holy. We are as holy as Christ. But there's also progressive sanctification or ongoing sanctification. And that's where God enables us to practically grow in our daily holiness, where we're now living set apart from sin. So this is mostly what we mean when we talk about sanctification. We're mostly talking about this progressive, ongoing dimension to it. And one of the main goals of our Christian life here below is to work out our salvation, to, to see our, our, now, our daily practice match our position in Christ. We are holy. We are righteous. So now live that way. That's sanctification. This is progressive, meaning it's meant to go and grow. Throughout the Christian life, practically, we know we continue to struggle against sin, but progressive sanctification is the work whereby Christians become holier throughout life. See it all throughout the New Testament. Hebrews 12, 14 mentioned that this morning. We are called to pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Romans 6, 11 through 12 reminds us, of our position. He says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. You are new in Christ, so, so live that way. First Thessalonians 4, 3 straight up tells us, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And down in verse 7 of First Thessalonians 4, it says, God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. It's part of our calling. Jesus is the perfect model of holiness and righteousness, right? This is why this concept of sanctification is often termed Christ-likeness. We're pursuing Christ-likeness. He is the standard of holiness to which we strive. Now, sanctification has, has God's side and man's side. God has a part, man has a part. This is synergistic. We, we, we have a part to play. Starting with God's side, God, we don't have equal roles. God's role is primary. God provides the power for us to change and grow. He does this specifically through the Holy Spirit, where God works within us to change us, to sanctify us, to uh, grow our desires enabling us to obey his commands, to turn from sin, and to follow him. And if God did not do his part, sending and working through the Spirit, we would never grow in sanctification. He provides the spiritual power of growth. That's why Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And that's the key. 1 Peter 1.2 refers to the sanctifying work of the Spirit, he sanctifies us. And First Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. 
God must provide the power, but we do have a part to play. Man has a side here. God calls us to respond and work. And all of the commands in Scripture to be holy and show that God he holds us accountable for our obedience and our holiness. We are made responsible to work out our salvation. God is a power source, so we need to trust him, pray, rely on his, his ordinary means of grace for which we are, uh, by which we grow. But at the same time, you just can't sit around and wait to grow. You can't sit around and expect to become more holy. You have to exert. Just like Augustine said, without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. This is Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which commands us to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And it reminds us, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He'll give you the, the desires, the power, but you must work it out, live it out. Romans 12, 1. We're urged by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. In Colossians 1.29, Paul reflected how he labors, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. It's a both and. You have to labor and strive for what God has called you to in holiness, but we do so according to his power within us. You know, children can't actually cause their bodies to grow. They can't control cell division and so on. Like their bodies are just programmed to grow. It's part of just being a healthy child. But they can do things in accordance with growth to help their bodies do what they're designed to do, like eating and drinking and exercising. And the same is true spiritually. Believers, God must cause the growth, but we have a role to play. He's given us a role to play, eat, drink, rest, exercise, so forth. Do things in accordance with growth and you will grow. Reading the Bible, meditating on scripture, abiding in Christ, prayer, worship, witnessing, fellowship, giving, and so forth. There's a long list of God's means of growth. His ordinary means of grace by which we, we put ourselves in the path of his power and we grow. And if you want to grow, you need to be utilizing these spiritual disciplines. That's its own lesson right, right there in itself. But if you want a, an extra word of application, if perhaps you weren't here this morning, you can download the morning message. It'll tell you a little bit more about uh, hungering and thirsting for this type of righteousness in our lives. We've got to keep going. We're close to being done. One more concept here under the continuation of salvation. Basically what happens before glory. Second concept here is perseverance. Perseverance. So let's, let's cover this one. Coming to salvation, it's not one of the best things that could happen to you. It, it is the best thing that could happen to you. But is it possible to lose your salvation once you gain it? And if so, nothing could so quickly deflate the hope and the joy you find in salvation. Thankfully, though, Scripture teaches that, that no. Once you become a true believer, and that's qualified by true believer, it's not possible for you to lose your salvation. And this concept that the true believer cannot lose their salvation is commonly referred to as the perseverance of the saints. The Bible teaches that salvation is permanent. And true believers will persevere in the faith their whole lives because God preserves them in the faith their whole lives. This, of course, means that if you have someone who claims to be a Christian and they fall away entirely, it's revealing the fact that they were never born again to begin with. And the nature, it's in the nature of saving faith to endure. That's one way you can tell a saving faith from a not saving faith. Does it endure? But like sanctification, perseverance has God's side and man's side. So when it comes to God's side, God's side is to preserve the doctrine we commonly call perseverance of the saints can just as well be titled preservation of the saints. That's what God does. We're called to persevere to the end, but we do so because God will preserve us to the end, his elect. Our work is enabled first by God's work. Once again, God's work is primary. 
He promises to keep his children in his kingdom forever. And there's no power great enough to stop God from keeping his promise. There's a horde of verses on this. Like John 6, 39. Christ says, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it on the last day. John 10, 27 through 29. Christ says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's, that's ultimate security. And of course, we've already mentioned Romans 8, 29 through 39. You've the unbreakable chain. Those whom he called, or those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It's treated as such a fact that he puts glorification in the past tense. It's an unbreakable chain. And he ends with, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. There's no force. It's not possible. Philippians 1.6, we're reminded that the God who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God's side is to preserve. Man's side is to persevere. There is a human side that God requires and commands believers to persevere or remain in the faith. And people cannot and should not expect that they can just pray the sinner's prayer and then abandon God the rest of their lives and expect that they're still going to heaven and going to be in the kingdom. Now, the true believer must remain in the faith, persevere in the faith their whole life until the end. Now, as with sanctification, man's side is secondary to God's side. But this does not mean believers can be passive or carefree when it comes to pursuing the Lord. Rather, because God enables us and preserves us, we are to press on, hold on to him, hold fast the faith even more in this life. John eight thirty one, Christ told the Jews who believed in him, he said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. First Corinthians sixteen thirteen tells us, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. We need that command. You need to be told to stand firm in the faith. Hebrews says even more starkly, Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. It says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. It's talking to believers. It says, encourage one another day after day, so long as it's still called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if... We hold fast our confession, or we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And we must persevere to be saved. Now, given that God has promised to preserve his chosen ones until the end, and given that nothing can stop God from keeping that promise, and given that the true believer will never abandon Christ, again, what does this mean for the so-called believer who has abandoned Christ, who's fallen away from the faith. It means they, they never were truly saved to begin with. It's the only conclusion you can reach. They were never truly born again. And the Bible actually talks about that often. Many so-called believers and identifies their false faith. In fact, this is why scripture calls on us to test ourselves and examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. 2 Corinthians uh, 13.4, I believe. But we are still to take comfort, take encouragement, and to know if, if you cling to Christ, if you are his by faith, that God will never let you go. He, he can't abandon you or forsake you. He's faithful. You have the Father, Son, and Spirit working together to preserve you. The God of the universe is on your side. Nothing can get in the way of that. And so... That should lead you to, like Hebrews tells us, to, to not lose heart, not grow weary. Though you might face suffering, persecution, trial, trouble, hang on. Just hold fast your faith firm until the end. Contend for the faith. Augustine's quote regarding sanctification likewise applies. So without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. 
It's a both and. You must hold on to God, but we're rest assured God will hold on to you. And in that confidence, just press on whatever comes. That's what we are to do. Even when the going gets tough, draw closer to the Lord and take assurance in him. Well, it's time to finish. And speaking of finishing, let's talk about the completion of salvation. We're just about out of time, but just enough time to squeeze in here. A last category in this big doctrine of salvation, we can just call the completion of salvation. Gotta keep rolling. Let's finish up. The completion of salvation. If you're here this morning, I mentioned how salvation is often referred to as being spoken of as already and not yet at the same time. In one sense, we're already saved. In another sense, we're not yet saved. And so thus far, we've already covered the, the past and present aspects of salvation, the, the already part. But what remains is the not yet part, the future part. Salvation presently is real and true, but not fully realized in this life. There is a future and final aspect to our salvation. This is termed glorification. There's only one point here, and it is glorification. So let's, let's cover that to finish our time. Now, right now, true believers in Christ have received the initial blessing of salvation. They've been called, converted, regenerated, justified, adopted, united to Christ. They're being sanctified and preserved. But in all this, their salvation still is not complete. They await the completion of their salvation, and that is glorification. It's helpful to think through what aspects of salvation we don't yet have. Right now, we still live in a sin-cursed body. That's not right. We still live in a sin-cursed world. We are still not in the presence of God. We're not perfectly like Christ. These are all part of the package deal of salvation, but we don't have them yet. We are looking forward to these future aspects. We have some aspects, not all. And these future aspects are all rectified or fulfilled in glorification. However, did you know there's three different stages to glorification? God will progressively fill these remaining salvation uh, promises progressively in three stages. Let's talk about those three stages. The first is death. When you die, you, you find stage one. Immediately upon a believer's death, his or her spirit departs from their body and enters the Lord's presence. You enter an intermediate state. It's not a soul sleep. This is a real fellowship with the Lord and with all believers. This place of fellowship, you might call it heaven, but that's, it's not the final state of God's people. That's called the new heavens and the new earth. But at this point, believers are made completely free from the power of sin, the penalty sin, and the presence of sin. You do become sinless. The old nature is completely gone. Believers are conformed to the image of Christ, but you still lack a glorified body to accompany your glorified spirit. And God's intention is that we have both. That doesn't happen yet. When you die, your body decays, your spirit is glorified before the Lord. This is the first stage. Luke 16, 22, although it's a parable, it hints at this, where it says the rich man died, or I'm sorry, it says the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And he descended to the other place. But it's talking about their spirits go on and have an experience though their bodies have decayed. Their spirits are living on. Didn't Christ say on the cross, Luke 23, 43, he told the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Later that day, their bodies went in the ground, but they lived on. And that the thief who was saved that last moment entered paradise. Acts 7.59, Stephen's being stoned. He's about to die. He calls on the Lord. He says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And it's safe to say the Lord answered that prayer. And you can read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8, which says a lot more on that. We're just out of time. Now, the second stage of glorification is resurrection. When you're resurrected. This takes place at the future resurrection. And we won't get into it. Different Christians believe 
or have some different views on the number of resurrections, the timing of resurrections. Leave that aside. We all believe there, there's a future resurrection when the dead in Christ will rise. And when Christ returns, all believers, whether still living on earth or in spirit in heaven, will be given resurrected bodies fit for eternity. The Bible doesn't teach this, this Platonism where, where physical matter is inherently evil and we will be disembodied spirits forever. Now, God made creation originally good, physical and spiritual, and when he recreates in the new kingdom, it will likewise be physical and spiritual, just redeemed. God created humans to be both body and spirit, and redemption is not complete until the effects of sin and the fall on the body are likewise undone. The curse that extended to our bodies has to be undone, and that, that takes place through resurrection. We're given resurrected bodies, and only then will we know our victory over sin and death is complete. In John six thirty nine, it says, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. And that's what Christ will do. Romans 8, 11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We've been resurrected in our souls at salvation, but our bodies will that awaits that future time when we are resurrected. And then uh, we read this morning, Philippians 3, 20 through 21. It says our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. That's speaking of that future day. And for the sake of time, just read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll get a lot more on resurrection. That's the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's finish, though, and there's a third and final phase to our glorification, and that's the new heavens and the new earth. New heavens, new earth. And that third stage of glorification takes place at the end of history. Believers will have perfected spirits and perfected bodies, but they will lack a perfect environment in which to worship God forever. So one of God's last acts in our history is to create a new heavens and a new earth. This is a perfect environment now, free from sin, free from all aspects of the curse and the fall. It's fit for God and Christ to dwell with his saints forever. This is when we gain that, a perfect environment. And just as the physical creation was cursed at the fall, Scripture looks forward to a time when creation is renewed and the saints will enter into the fullness of worship, free forever from sin, suffering, sickness, death, pain. First things have passed away. All things are made new. That's the new heavens, the new earth. 2 Peter 3.13 says, According to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here you can read the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21-22, for the detailed look at that time of, of everlasting glory. And that is our great and lasting hope, this new heavens, this new earth, when we're free from the curse of sin and death forever, how it's affected our bodies our, our world, and our relationship with the Lord. And the doctrine of salvation expounds on this hope. The whole thing over these two parts, this, this whole massive doctrine, it's all about expounding on our hope, the hope we have in Christ. It all centers on a person. Our hope is not in a place, ultimately, or a thing, but it's in a person. It's in Christ Jesus. We need to know him, who he is, what he's done for us in this salvation, and cling to him. It's all about Christ. Until then, as we learned this morning, let's eagerly wait for this Savior, yet busying ourselves with the work he's left us to do. And pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I mean, I don't know about you. Let's get the show on the road. I'm, I'm ready for the next chapter, but it's not up to us. But we'll pray, come, Lord Jesus, to finish what we promised. Let's end with that prayer. Lord God in heaven, we, we come before you and, and do pray that you you 
you come quickly, you send Christ to return, restore this world. We see this world, it's still out of order. The curse still reigns. People sin, get sick, suffer, and die each and every day. There's injustice and unrighteousness. Our own bodies decay. Creation is still longing, groaning for its redemption. We, we marvel at what you've already done. We've seen salvation accomplished. The provision has been made and it's being applied. We're seeing that the greatest miracle each and every day of new birth, you're still calling sinners to life. We, we glorify you for that work of salvation and its ongoing aspect. But we do long for its, its finality. We long for when Christ returns, the kingdom comes, and we are free from sin and death forevermore. Until then, keep us content, keep us busy and working for you and declaring the excellencies of one who called us out of darkness into light. Help us to hold fast the confession of our hope until the end. We know that you are faithful, Lord. We, help, uh, we pray you help us by your spirit uh, to likewise be faithful in our, on our end, clinging to Christ. As we look to him, may it purify us. As it says in 1 John 3, it be a, a purifying hope. We look for Christ in the heavens. We pray he comes quickly, but, but help us just to be about your, your business. You've left us behind for a reason. To glorify you in our sanctification and to, to spread the gospel, to issue this general call across the globe. So may we just do that. Keep us busy in that, glorifying you in that until Christ returns. We long for that day. Until then, uh, to him be the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.